Chapter 6, Part 1, in the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan. Have you ever fell victim to mistaken identity? Right? Some of you guys have faces that are just really familiar. People look at you and they think, oh, like you remind me of somebody I know. Well, for me, I don't have one of those faces. But I was once mistaken for a celebrity. I was walking in the mall all by myself, minding my own business, when from afar, I see a bunch of my old youth group students. And so as I'm walking and we're getting closer, I start to hear them say or shout, Jeremy Lin, Jeremy Lin, and they point my way. And so all of a sudden, this crowd of people surround me. They want to know if I'm Jeremy Lin. They want to take a picture with me. They want my autograph. Right? I was mistaken for Jeremy Lin. And maybe there's some slight resemblance. Right? But I was receiving all this attention because of what Jeremy Lin was doing at that moment. It was at the height of insanity. Right? So he went from being a person who never played to being the savior of the New York Knicks. Right? He turned the New York Knicks season around. He went from the last person on the bench to, win, to hitting game winners. And I was receiving all this attention because I maybe looked like him a little bit. For me, I felt like Jesus. Right? Remember that time when Jesus fed the 5,000? Right? This crowd was lining up to see Jesus. They had heard about all the miraculous things they did, all the healings that were happening. And so they came one by one, and this crowd had surrounded him because they wanted to see him do something amazing. And they weren't disappointed that day. They did see something so miraculous, so spectacular, so extraordinary. Now, Jesus, he performed many miracles. That was not his first miracle. But it is the only miracle that we find in all four Gospels. Right? Jesus feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's significant because it means that all four Gospel writers thought that it was important enough to include in their narrative, their account of the good news. And so today, we're going to be focusing on this miracle story and seeing how Jesus reveals himself not just as our Savior, but also as our provider. Jesus is going to reveal himself not just as Savior, but provider. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. So starting with John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. After a tense discussion with the religious elite, Jesus moves locations. But as we see here, his ministry has been picking up momentum. People are hearing about all the miraculous things that he's been doing, and they want to see it for themselves. And many of you know this story as Jesus feeding the 5,000. But in the passage, we're told that the men numbered 5,000. So it's actually more accurate to say that Jesus was surrounded by at least 15,000 people if you include the children and women. So how was Jesus to address this large crowd? Well, Jesus being the astute and wise person that he is, he comes up with a solution. He goes onto the mountainside and it's a strategic move because there are few other options for him to be able to teach and to see this large crowd. And at this point, we see where Jesus' heart is. There was probably a million things on Jesus' mind. He could have been thinking about the next great discourse, what he was going to teach in this moment to these people. Or maybe he was just tired. Maybe the reason why he went onto the mountainside was because he was so tired of arguing and, and discussing these things with the religious elite. There are so many things that could have been on Jesus' mind. But despite all of that, we see where his focus is. The first thing that comes to his mind as he looks at the crowd is, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where should we buy bread for these people to eat? It's a very practical question. But when we look deeper, it reveals God's heart for people. He could have easily been concerned with his own needs, but instead he is thinking about the well-being of others. Jesus cares for you and me. Jesus cares deeply for you and me. The feeding of 5,000 doesn't just point to the power of Jesus, but it points to his compassion for people. The miracle itself was not a way for, for him to show how mighty he is, but it was a means by which he cared and loved those he encountered. How many times have we questioned Jesus' love for us? When things aren't going our way, and when we're faced with hardship, how easy is it for us to question whether God cares for us? Sorry, that's not a random child. That's my son. <laughs> and I think he just wants to get on stage and, uh, and just show his face. But how easy is it for us to question whether God cares for us? Maybe you've been praying that God would provide in your life in a big way. Maybe your prayer is that God would heal, right? You're asking God, will you heal me or a friend who is going through an illness or sickness? 
Or maybe your prayer is of reconciliation. You're asking God to mend a broken relationship. Or maybe the prayer that you find yourself praying is one of having a future spouse. Maybe you're asking God, please, God, would you provide the right person in my life who I can marry? But what if God didn't answer your prayers the way that you wanted? What if God's answer was different from what you had hoped for or expected? So many times we're left unsatisfied with God's answer and it makes us question him. When we don't receive what we want from God or, it doesn't, or we don't like the answer that he's giving to us, it leads us to question whether he's powerful enough, good enough, or if he actually really cares for us. But we, what we see in this passage is a God who deeply cares for you and me. And he is able to fully meet every one of our needs. The things that we ask for are not beyond his scope or power, but it may just be that they are outside of his purpose for us. The things that we ask for are not outside of Jesus' scope and power, but it may just be outside of his purpose for us. This is where we need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Right? Take, for instance, Jesus' question to Philip. When Jesus asked Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? We are told that this was a test for Philip because Jesus already knew what he was about to do. He already had a purpose in what he was going to do. Jesus knew that he was about to do something miraculous and spectacular. He knew that he was going to feed every single person at that place. That day, the disciples in the crowd that had gathered witnessed something so special that it could only be explained as a miracle. But it's not the miracle that we should focus on today. So many of us gravitate towards the miraculous and extraordinary that we miss what's really important. In this moment, Jesus wasn't revealing his power and might, but he was also revealing himself as the provider of our lives. Right? Let's not get distracted by the miracle, although miracles are cool, but let's keep our eyes on the one who performs the miracle, and that's Jesus. So as we look at this miracle story, we're going to talk about three observations that we can embrace about Jesus being our provider. And the first is, Jesus doesn't need your realism. Jesus doesn't need your realism. Look at what it says in verses 7 through 9. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip's reaction to Jesus is reasonable. In response to Jesus expressing his desire to feed every single person there, Philip calculates in his head how much it would even cost, let alone how he would procure it. And this is his answer to Jesus. It is way above our means. It is not possible for us to feed everyone here. He assesses the situation and makes a logical, sensible, and realistic conclusion. And now, I firmly believe in being wise and sensible. Right? It's actually a good thing to be logical and realistic. And some of us, to be honest, we need more of it. But in cases like these, where I see scripture tells us that God chooses the foolish things of the world 
to shame the wise. There are prayers, things that we want, things that we are looking for from God that are beyond the worldly analysis or conventional wisdom because we are dealing with the Almighty. Having Jesus changes the equation. Having Jesus changes the math. Bringing Jesus into our circumstances and situations changes what is illogical and logical. We worship a God who we claim to be of the impossible. And because of that, we can trust that God will provide one way or another. Jesus was never meant to be boxed in. And yet that's what we've done. We have put Jesus in a box when we limit the reach that God can have in our lives. How many times have we questioned what Jesus can and cannot do? And where does this understanding of God's limit or reach come from? When I look at scriptures, I don't see a limited Jesus. I see a Jesus who can do all things. I see a Jesus who can heal the sick, break chains, and yes, even raise the dead to life. I see a Jesus who is not limited in his love, but who is willing to give up his own life to love those who sin against him. Jesus has broken every barrier and limit, and it would be foolish to put Jesus in a box thinking that we know what he can and cannot do. But I think there's another way that sometimes we limit Jesus. Right? Some of us, we put Jesus in this box, but others of us, we actually live our lives as if Jesus didn't exist. And what I'm not talking about here is like living in sin, right? That's a whole other topic. But what I'm talking about here is that so many of us, we make decisions absent of God's input. We live our lives and make decisions based out of fear, what's smart or what society says we should do, instead of allowing God to really speak into the situation and ask him, what do you want me to do? Instead of including God in our lives and decisions, we will listen to other people's voices and opinions. We would rather listen to the wisdom of the world than to listen to the one who is in control of all things and can do all things. When I was in college, I had very little work experience. The only work experience that I had was in the summers I would tutor. And also I was an assistant teacher at a daycare. That was part of my work study. So what essentially that means is I just ran around with kids. Right? I didn't do anything. I maybe got the cookies for them, things like that. But I had no work experience. And so I remember when I got um, older and I was a junior in college, that was a time where my mom and dad were like, hey, you need to get an internship. Like it would be really uh, important for you to get some work experience so that later on you can get a job after graduating. But at that time, I just felt like my heart was like really hardened. I felt like my heart was really hardened. I felt like God was saying, you need to go on missions. And so... Instead of trying to look for an internship, I committed, I made the decision to go on missions to Afghanistan. And I remember making that decision. It was just um, met with a lot of criticism and a lot of questioning. Right? My mom, who is a Christian, she was just being very practical. And she was like, why are you going on missions? Like, you're going to be a senior next year. You need to use this last summer to get an internship. Because if you don't, you're not going to get a job after you graduate. And then my dad, who's not a Christian, he was just questioning my sanity. He's like, why would you go to Afghanistan and serve and love these people that you don't, you've never met before? Why would you go to Afghanistan and go on this mission trip? 
And mind you, this was in the year 2005, so if you think about the war in Afghanistan, it started in 2001, and so this is a few years into that. And so I made this decision trusting in God and believing that this is where he was leading me to, but it was met with derision, it was met with questioning. But despite their concerns, I went. And it was an amazing experience. God like, showed me so many great things. God showed me just his power and his might. And also God broke my heart for people. But the greater thing is when I got back, I just was able to see how God is truly a God of provision. Because when I got back, it was my senior year, and I remember I was just like in my, in my room, like whatever, doing work, and you know, I don't know what I was learning at that time, but I was sitting in my room and I get this email from career services. I had never contacted them before. I had never reached out to them, never went to there, but they sent me this email. I was like, hey, Clay, uh, we just want to know, if you, are you interested in getting an internship at this finance company? Because I was an economics major at the time. And so I was like, yeah, I'm interested. And so for me, this was like God just laying it on my lap. Like, this is where I want you to be. Don't worry about anything. I will provide. And so I went through the interview process. I got the job. I got this internship. But that's not the best part because not only did God just put it on my lap, but this internship was a paid internship. So my last semester of college, essentially I was being paid to go to school because this company was far away from my school, so they reduced my tuition because I was a commuter. I was getting paid, and so the amount that I made was actually far more than what I was paying in tuition to go to school. And so my last semester, I was earning credits with this paid internship. And so it was a reminder to me that God does provide, right? If we seek his kingdom first, God says that all these things will be given to you. God provides. Jesus doesn't need your realism. He doesn't need you telling him what he can and cannot do. God could do whatever he wants, even if it goes against conventional wisdom or what is smart. We believe in a God who can do the impossible. God is a provider. And the second way that we embrace Jesus as provider is by bringing whatever we have to Jesus despite our doubts. We are to bring whatever we have to Jesus despite our doubts. Philip was not the only disciple to respond to Jesus. We see that Andrew also speaks up. And here in verse 9, he says, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Think about how ridiculous this situation is. Here is a grown man, Andrew, thrusting this little kid into the action. Right? Who knows if this boy even wants to share his lunch? I, I can't imagine what that conversation between Andrew and this boy was like. But nonetheless, Andrew brings this boy and his basket to Jesus and says, look at what I have. Look at what I've brought you. But there's a sense of doubt coming from Andrew. On one hand, he has just brought a potential solution to the situation. But on the other hand, he questions what Jesus can do with it. But Andrew, even bringing the boy to Jesus, is a great act of faith. Him bringing this boy in his basket is an act of faith. We are called to be like Andrew. He sees what he's got. And then he takes it to Jesus. He has no idea what to do with it. He has no plan for it. But he just says, God, this is all I can think of. 
to Jesus, this is all I can think of. Now you do whatever you want to do with it. And that's like us. Some of us don't even know what we have to bring to Jesus. We tell ourselves, I'm not good enough or I have nothing to offer to God. We love to spotlight people who are charismatic, great in their giftings and even well-packaged. And many of us will look at them and covet what they have and the positions that they have. And we tell ourselves, only if I was that gifted, only if I was more like that person. You compare yourself to others, diminishing and dismissing how God has equipped you. But do you know when God is most glorified? Do you know when God is most glorified? It's when God does something amazing, not because of you, but despite of you. If you're thinking that God can't use you or what you have to give, you're making it more about yourself than God. God is most glorified when he does something amazing, not because of you, but despite of you. Have you ever received a backhanded compliment? Right? It hurts. I was once on the receiving end of one of these. I was, I was at the church office getting ready for one of these events. And so someone in our church, I will, they will remain nameless, right? They come and they're just like, Clay, you are so gifted as a preacher. And when he said that, I was like, oh, I feel so good about myself. Man, that is so encouraging. And it would have been great if he just stopped there. But then he continues. He's like, yeah, like you know that you're gifted and anointed because what you do on stage and the power that you bring, you can't do that yourself. You're not naturally gifted as a communicator. <laughs> and my heart just dropped. It was just so disheartening. It was so just hurtful to hear that. And then he continues to go on. He's like, he starts to name all these people and she's like comparing me to them. He's like, you know, this person and that person is such a great communicator. They could do what they do and be effective without God, but you need God. <laughs> and it's true. It is true. Right? To be honest, right, I'm not the most eloquent speaker. Right? I'm not the most gifted uh, preacher. It takes me a lot of work and time and effort to prepare. And to be honest, it didn't feel good to hear that. But I understand the only reason that I'm up here preaching is because I'm called to be a pastor. To be honest, I hate public speaking. If it were up to me, I wouldn't be up here. But I find it as part of my call as a pastor to preach. And so I think of it as if it is truly by the grace of God that I can preach, then I will continue doing it, knowing that whatever I have to give to God, God will use. If my lack of ability in comparison with others brings more glory to God, then I will say, bring it on. If I need to become less so that God can become greater, I will gladly do so. See, it doesn't matter so much how, what you have to bring to God or as long as you're bringing it with a faithful heart. When we look at who God chooses, oftentimes it's the ordinary people. Right? Moses was chosen to lead the Israelites out of Egypt even though he had a speech impediment. 
King David, before he became king, he was a shepherd boy. He was the least among his family. Even Samuel dismissed him. But because he was a man after God's heart, he became the greatest king of Israel. And when we look at Jesus choosing the disciples, who did he choose? It was the fishermen, the tax collectors, even people who would deny and betray him. And these are the people that Jesus chose to continue his work and ministry. Throughout the Bible, we see that God chooses the ordinary to do extraordinary things. Jesus doesn't need you to be the most gifted or talented. All he needs from you is to give whatever you have, and he will do something amazing and miraculous with it. And that's what we see here in this passage. Look at what happens when Jesus is given this little that the boy had. Starting in verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had all, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who have eaten. To be honest, I have no idea what happened here. I have no idea how Jesus made this happen. I don't know if he's breaking bread and the bread is growing or if the baskets are just multiplying. But somehow Jesus is making it so that there's enough food for everyone. Some scholars have suggested that the miracle wasn't a miracle of multiplication, but it was actually they were moved by seeing this little boy give what he had. And so everyone started taking out what they were hiding and started sharing it with others. Right? That is a very logical explanation for what happened, but I don't think it's a plausible one. Because when we look at the text as a whole, what do we see at the end? We see that after this crowd had witnessed what Jesus had done, the crowd proclaims that he is the prophet to come, and they're ready to make him king at that moment. There was something so amazing, so incredible that Jesus did that led the crowd wanting to make him king. I don't think it was as simple as them just sharing their food. Jesus did the impossible that day, and he multiplied that food that the boy had to offer. God will take your offering no matter how minuscule you think your contribution is, and he will use it for his glory. When you offer yourself up to before Jesus, he will multiply. We have to remember that as provider, Jesus doesn't need our realism. He just wants us to bring whatever we have despite our doubts because it is he who multiplies and provides. Jesus is the provider of our lives. And lastly, we embrace Jesus as provider because Jesus' provision over our lives has, is, and will continue to be abundant. Jesus' provision over our lives has, is, and will continue to be abundant. It would have been a miracle in itself if Jesus provided even one bite for everyone. Right? Even Philip's response is that they don't have the means for even just one bite. But Jesus goes beyond what is needed. Look at what it says, starting verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had, e who had eaten. Jesus takes this one small basket of loaves and fish and he uses it to feed over 15,000 people. And yet, he still has 12 baskets left. The amount that was left over was more than what they had started with. Think about how incredible that is. You start out with not having enough and um, end up having more than enough. Jesus didn't just meet the need. He goes one step further and provides more than enough. Jesus has a track record of going above and beyond. He is abundant in his blessings and lavishes us with his grace. His abundance cannot be quantified by our need, but can only be seen through his grace. What I mean by this is that sometimes we can look at our lives and question whether God is abundant. When we don't receive what we ask for, or maybe we're tired of just continuing to ask God on a daily basis. We wonder why God can't just give us enough so that we can stop asking him. But this is where we have to remember, God knows what we need better than we know ourselves. God in his infinite wisdom will give us what we need according to his purposes. Sometimes having too much can actually be detrimental. How many of us, once we receive more than enough, would stop going to God to depend on him? God knows exactly what we need and gives accordingly. Jesus does, Jesus does not withhold anything from us. He freely gives and he has proven it on the cross. What more could Jesus give than his own life? Even before we knew that we needed a savior, Jesus became that savior. Jesus has, is, and will continue to be abundant in our lives. And if we believe in that, then it would change the way that we pray. Our prayers would be different. It's very easy to hold your agenda over God, even if it's good and altruistic, but it's not God's. But as we see through the work and ministry of Jesus and our own lives, it's so much better that he's the one in the driver's seat. We can trust that God knows what we need and that he will be abundant. When I first got into ministry, uh, I started out as a youth pastor, and the thought was that I would never leave youth ministry. Right? One of the reasons why was because I love kids. I love being with young people. But at the same time, I hated how people, pastors, would use youth ministry as a stepping stone. A lot of pastors would be like, oh, I'll get my feet wet in youth ministry. I'll learn and get experience, and then I'll go into adult ministry. And so for so many pastors, it's like beneath them or below them. And I hated that. And so I committed to God, and I was like, God, I'm going to stay in youth ministry until you kick me out. And after years, he did kick me out. I'm no longer doing youth ministry. Um, but a part of that was because I recognized um, that it was harder for me to connect with, like, high schoolers. Like, to me, I see myself like a, as an old soul. And so I'm not hip. I'm not really young. And I'm not into like what's trendy or the new, um, like what, what uh, kids are using for their lingo. I have no idea what they say sometimes. Right? They're using all these words and all these things. And I'm just like, I don't understand you. Please just use like simple English words. 
right? And also, like, I don't use emojis. Like, the way that they communicate, they use emojis and pictures, and I'm just like, I don't know emojis. I don't use emojis. I still use an equal sign, you know, parentheses for a smiley face. My son knows more emojis than I do. And so as the years went on, it was harder for me to connect with them. And that's when I really knew, like, God was, like, kicking me out of youth ministry. But also, he started giving me a greater heart for just the church in general. And that's when I transitioned into adult ministry. And to be honest, it was one of those, like, reluctant things because I do love kids. I do love the youth. Um, And being in adult ministry is hard. It's been hard. You know, starting a new ministry during a pandemic has been really difficult because for 10 years or so, like, all my relationships was with, like, kids and also their parents. And then I'm asked to, like, build these new relations with people I've never met before. And so being, being in adult ministry was difficult. But in the last few years, I really see how God's been pruning me and growing me. I see how God's been maturing and just, for me, he's been revealing like areas that I need to grow, but also the areas that I excel in. And it's been one of those seasons where I feel like God's been really challenging me. And he's been preparing me for a new challenge. And as some of you know, I will be leaving Metro in about a month from now. Um, So... Uh, I and my family, we're actually going to be moving to Chicago. I've taken on a lead pastor position at a church called Redeemer Life. Uh, But this decision wasn't an easy one. Um, Even as we were thinking through and discerning whether we should go, it was just such a hard decision because so much of our lives is here in New Jersey. This is where our comfort is. This is where the people that we love and the people that we know, this is where our friends and our family is. This is the, you know, New Jersey has a special place for me because I've spent almost half of my life here in New Jersey. You know, as a lot of you guys know, I love Boston, but this is second home. I've been here for the last 18 years. This is where I met my wife, this church. This is where my kids were born. And so New Jersey will always have a special place in my heart, in my life. But that made the decision to take on this new opportunity even harder. And so right now, I'm just going through a lot of emotions. Like, I'm really excited about the opportunity to lead a church and to be a lead pastor. But I'm really sad because we're going to be leaving the church that we love, the church that we've been part of for 12 years, and family and friends. And then there's another part of me that's just really scared. Like, if I can be completely honest with you, I'm really scared about this transition because I don't know if I'm good enough to be a lead pastor. Like, I get scared, like, am I going to fail as a lead pastor? I get scared thinking about doing ministry alone because I'm going to a church where there's one part-time children's pastor, and I'm coming from a church where we have, like, a staff of almost 20 people. I'm scared that my family will have a difficult transition, right? Like I said, this is just comfortable for us. We know everyone. We know everything. I love this church. I don't want to leave this church. But part of me is like, I need to be faithful to the way that God is leading and calling not only me and my family. And so I am extremely scared about different things. But despite all those fears, despite all these fears, I choose to believe that God will provide. I may not know what the future holds, and I don't know if I'll be any good as a lead pastor. And I don't know if my family will have a good time and if that's the right move for them. But I'm putting my faith in God. I know that God can do the impossible and that there is nothing too big for God, even though sometimes I feel overwhelmed and things are too big for me. 
I go into this new chapter in my life trusting that he has a plan and believing that God can use whatever I have to give for his glory. And I understand also that I'm not alone in this. I'm going with God. And God is a God of abundance. God has been so good to me and my family. God has provided more than I could ever deserve or need. And he will continue to do so. And so, yes, I'm scared about this move. I'm excited about this move. But for me, this is just us being faithful to the call that God has for us, trusting that he will provide. While we can get enamored by the miracles and all the impossible and amazing things that Jesus does, my hope today is that what stays with you is that God is a God of provision, that Jesus is not just your savior, but he is your provider. Jesus didn't just come to save the world. He came to be with you and me and to provide for our needs. Let's embrace Jesus as our provider, not questioning what he can and cannot do, but believing that we have a God of the impossible and that when we bring an offering to him, he can multiply it because he is always going to be a God of abundance. The miracle is wonderful. The miracle is great. But at the heart of what God is trying to tell you and me today is that he deeply cares for us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will be a God who is there in your darkest moments and also in your moments of, of joy. But what is consistent and constant is that he is a God who will always provide. Will you bow your heads with me? God, we worship you and praise you because you deserve that. Not only are you a God who can do all things, but you are a God who loves us deeply. You are a God who cares for us. You are a God who's with us in our darkest moments, but also, God, you are a God who celebrates us in our victories. And my prayer today is that we would not see you as a God who is far off, in the distance, but that we would see you as a God who is very near to us, who knows us, who knows what we need and will provide it. I pray, Father, for anyone who needs healing right now, that you would heal them. For anyone, God, who finds themselves just in bondage, that you would free them, that you would be the chain breaker I pray, Father, for anybody who is just needing encouragement, that you would encourage them. I pray, Father, for anyone who doesn't know you as Savior, that you would be their Savior. And so, God, I just pray not only that we would see you as the one who meets every one of our needs, but Lord, that we would see, God, just our role in just embracing you as provider, God. To be honest, God, you can do all things without us. You don't need us. You are a God, you are almighty. You can do anything you want, but you choose to use us. 
You choose for us to be your hands and your feet into this world. And that's a privilege, that's the honor. Because God, when we serve you, when we give up our offerings to you, God, we get to experience just your fulfillment and your um, just power, God, in our own lives. We see how you work, God. We get to experience, God, what you're doing in this world. We get to experience what you're doing in this church. And so I just pray, Father, that we would never dismiss just how you've created us, God, that we would never covet anyone or anyone's other's giftings, but that we would see, God, how you created us uniquely, wonderfully, fearfully, and that you've given us a purpose. And so it's not about us, God. It's about what you can do through us. But I just pray, Father, that we would just take that posture of just bowing before you, God, and saying, God, have all of us. That we would give it all to you, God, so that you would be glorified. So thank you, God, for being a God who is near. Thank you, God, for being a God who meets us, God, where we are. And thank you for being a God who can do the impossible. And so we place our faith and our trust in you. We place our hopes in you. We place, God, everything on you because we know, Father, it's you who will lead us. It is you who will guide us. It is you, God, who we can just cling to and find refuge. So we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.